I flew with this girl and she was my last cadet of the day. I'd already done about nine. I was really tired. We got airborne and she actually turned out to be one of the most natural pilots in that raw state. And I saw her a year later and she said, Mandy, I just want to tell you, I got all my exams. I'm doing my A-levels and I want to be a pilot just like you. And it was these three words. And I realized that just like you is far more important to actually be that person that youngsters could respond to, that they can see somebody that's achieved it. And that's when I changed my flight path completely and ended up setting up my own company and becoming a keynote speaker. Hi, and welcome to the When Women Fly podcast, where we speak with women who dare to pursue their dreams and fly, literally and metaphorically. I am your host, Sylvia Winter. Each week, we highlight the many ways flying shows up and examine what happens physically, mentally, and emotionally when we defy gravity, bust our own limiting beliefs, chart our own course, and rewrite the notions of what women can and should do. I believe that in telling our stories, we are shifting a larger narrative, one small win at a time. The great philosopher Aristotle said, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an act, but a habit. And Andrew Carnegie said, if you want to be happy, set a goal that commands your thoughts, liberates your energy, and inspires your hopes. What goals have you made this year? Maybe you've decided that you want to start pursuing your passion or become an entrepreneur. Or perhaps you want to start becoming more physically fit and sign up for a challenge. Maybe you want to face your fear of heights or difficult conversations or failure or learn to fly. Think about that goal for a second. How are you going to get there? What steps are you going to take to achieve what you set out to do? Maybe you're not really sure where to begin. You just know where you want to end up. In every case, there will be obstacles. My guest today, Mandy Hickson, is an expert at knowing obstacles. She was only the second woman to fly in the Royal Air Force, the Tornado GR4, on the front line, amassing over 30 years experience within aviation and completing three tours of duty and 45 missions over Iraq during that time. Don't be fooled by Mandy's levity in this interview. This convivial also has a wealth of experience to share, from working in a male-dominated environment, from battling imposter syndrome to juggling life as a working mother of two young children. And as a coach and mentor and facilitator, she inspires others covering the core areas of human performance factors, decision-making, communication, leadership, behavior, workload, conflict, fatigue, and stress management. In this interview, and also in Mandy's book, An Officer, Not a Gentleman, She describes how she overcame many challenges, both personal and gender equality-wise, to reach her ultimate goal of flying a tornado. Her passion and energy is contagious. She is engaging and quite funny in places and also sobering in others. She comes across as very real and a regular person who just happens to have done some awesome stuff. Okay, before we get started, one little human note from me, your host. I recorded this interview two days before moving across the Atlantic Ocean with my husband and three kids, and I have to admit, I was a little distracted. I know this is meta information that I rarely include, but in the context of Mandy Hickson and who she has become, a mentor and a coach, someone who encourages people 
who show up to do what they are meant to do, letting go of judgments and imperfection. I couldn't have been in better hands. I have more about my move in subsequent episodes, but for now, I just wanted to pull the veil back for a second and be real here. Let's jump in. My conversation with Mandy Hickson. All right, Mandy, I'm just going to jump right in here. First of all, I'm just really so excited to talk to you today. You are only the second female to fly a tornado on the front line. You have pioneered movement of women in the Royal Air Force. And you just have a remarkable career, spending much of it as an only. And this conversation is really going to drill into what you've taken away from that, the mental resilience, the bravery, and just your general attitude towards life that you've picked up as having such a unique background. So thank you. And I'm just really looking forward to this conversation. Me too, as well. It's an absolute pleasure to be able to join you today, Sylvia. I'd love to start with your background and hear a little bit more about your your backstory, the context in which flying became a passion of yours and your early influences. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, I grew up in the north of England, very humble upbringing. My parents, neither of them were in aviation at all, but my grandfather was a pilot during the Second World War. And I grew up hearing his stories from a very, very early age. And I do remember sort of sitting on his knee and him would tell me these incredible stories of flying in Africa when he was training people, flying on things like the Harvards and the Oxfords. And, you know, and this was sort of like really had me gripped from this very, very young stage. And so I'll never forget the first time when I was sitting next to my mum and we were watching the television. And many of your listeners will remember The wonderful Tom Selleck is Magnum P.I. And it was one of my favorite shows and I had a huge crush on Magnum. And I remember I was watching it with mum and she was reading the local newspaper and it said that the Air Cadets, which is an organization in the UK run by the Royal Air Force for youngsters aged 13 to 18 year olds, it was going to be opening its doors to girls for the very, very first time the following week. And my mum said, why don't you join Mandy? That would really suit you. And I sort of looked at her and I went, what night's it on? And she said, Tuesdays. And I went, "Uh uh-uh, Magnum. Magnum was on television and I was not going to miss Magnum. And it was the days before we had videos and all the rest of it. You couldn't record it. You couldn't record it. People were going, you what? You couldn't record? Couldn't get it on catch up? And so I was like, I'm not missing Tom. And she said, but they, you know, do canoeing. And I thought, well, I like canoeing. And she said, but also, Mandy, you go to an all-girls school and this might be your only opportunity to meet some boys. Oh, that is so funny. I joined the next week and I did meet boys, but I also fell in love with flying because as soon as I got airborne, I just remember we were going over these huge big oil rapeseed fields, these bright yellow fields, looking down and the instructor was talking me through things. He said, would you like to do a loop the loop? And I was like, absolutely. And, And I said, do you get paid to do this? And he said, yes, it's my job. And I thought, oh, it was this moment of revelation where I thought, wow, you can get paid to do something that you love. And that was it, really. And that was the moment I got hooked on flying. Yeah. So what was it about you that your mom was tapping into when she said this would be up your alley? That's a really good question. Because actually, I think it's that that feeling of, I would have been described in the old days as being a bit of a tomboy, we would say in the UK. You know, I was always the one climbing trees, always in a tracksuit, always there getting my knees muddy. 
I loved all sports as well. So I was really, really sporty. And I do tend to think that a lot of the people that tend to go into the military do tend to have that sort of mindset. They do tend to be the sort of person that actually looks for something a little bit different, enjoy challenging themselves, be it on the sports field or be in a slightly different area. So I was the one climbing to the very highest branch with my mum looking up saying, just hold on tight, darling. Yeah. So she was looking for a good portal for you to do that in a positive way. Yeah, exactly. And then one of the things I loved on in the Air Cadets as well was things like we did night exercises. We would put camouflage cream on. We'd go crawling on our hands and knees through bushes. I loved all that side of things. And I also really loved the camaraderie. I loved that team ethos that came with that. So that team spirit of that you would have gotten from sports as well, but that really was another place to be both part of a team and also very physical, which I think is something that girls and boys, but I just think that we, especially when we're in that developmental age, doing something physical that we feel really positive about just has a lot of downstream positive benefits. I don't think you can underestimate really just how powerful sport is. And I think, you know, when I look at my resilience levels as well, so I would say I'm a really resilient person. And I think a lot of that came from doing sport because there was often a winner and there was a loser in sport. You know, there was a team that absolutely annihilated the rest of the opposition. And sometimes that was not us. And that would be devastating. And I remember I was a terrible loser and I'd be playing badminton or tennis. And I was in a stage where I would throw my racket. I was an awful, awful youngster playing sport, especially individual sport. I was fine in a team. The individual, I almost couldn't cope with the pressure to get really angry with myself until I was about 16, actually. And then I finally learned. But, you know, you'd often be beaten. And it was about realizing that that we're going to be people that were better than you. But also by doing that, you be you start to build up resilience, which is, you know, something that I think we have lost a little bit in the generations that we've brought and uh, nurtured when we have this ethos, certainly in schools in the UK, where there are no losers, everyone's a winner. At Sports Day, we don't do the competitive races. We only do the beanbag ones because we want everyone to have an equal playing field. Oh my gosh. So what do you think of that? Because I, as a parent of children that are about the age that you were, my husband and I talk about this all the time because we have this culture in the US, which sounds like it's in the UK as well. And certainly where we raised our kids in Cambridge outside of Boston, which is very inclusive, which I love. But one of the ways that that shows up in sport and in, in school is that there isn't the type of competition that really supports that driving and the and the learning how to win and to lose. And versus in Switzerland, when we lived there before and as we're returning, when we lived there before, there was a sense of competition as literally part of life and part of the life skills that they were not afraid to exercise in all sorts of ways. And so I'm, I'm, super, I'm very curious what you think of that. You're, you know, you're a parent of four and you've, you know, managed to get through that stage. So how does it show up when, they, when the children are a bit older as your age? I think you've got two sides to it, really. I think if you are the parent of the sporty children who do excel in the sports field and you see them doing really well and it's sort of almost like, yeah, that's great. But then I've also, I have friends whose children are not sporty at all. And actually for them, going through those sports days is torture and they feel deflated. You can see their parents there this look of, oh my goodness, here we are again. And this almost like a sense of disappointment that's coming across. So 
Yeah, I'm on very two minds, actually. One, I love competition. And I think it's sad that we've got away from competition completely. But I also do think, you know what? I've watched sports days with my nephew recently, and it was just the most inclusive sports day I've ever seen. It was beanbag throwing. It was how can who could do the funniest walk race? It was all of these things. And do you know what? The kids loved it. And I thought, do you know what? They are all having a brilliant time. Is it our own issues that we want to see? Is it the strongest that survive? Is it that, you know, and I think maybe it is. Maybe it is ours and that generational thing. So you have two very mixed minds, really. Yeah. And maybe it is being more creative about competition and being including all sorts of different ways that we can compete on the sports field, but also a lot of sports is as much of a mental game as it is a physical game. It is. It doesn't have to all be about sports, does it? I was having a wonderful chat to a lady that runs an engineering project for primary schools. And she was saying that she goes in with all these amazing engineering projects. And often it's the really academic children that struggle with these because they're more practical based and they're perfectionists. So actually what they see is that these youngsters who are used to doing brilliantly, they're the real go-getters, the ones that are used to being at the top of the class. They are the ones that are not, because guess what? It's the ones that love Lego. It's the ones that actually are really good with their hands. They're starting to excel in these engineering projects. And actually, they're the ones that are showing the academic ones how to do something. And she said, it's this wonderful moment. And it's also a wonderful moment for the teachers to see them, because whether we like it or not, we start to compartmentalize our children into they're the group that do well, they're the not so. And actually, suddenly that cognitive diversity that we realize we have can actually be a real strength. Yeah. And we put ourselves in those boxes, too. It's a sort of this, this reaction we have. I heard that you talk in one of the, your interviews when I was preparing for this about a, a really unfortunate, in my perspective, situation where you were judged by and told that you were obese. And I'm wondering if you can talk about this because I was so struck by this. And you can give the context as well. I think it's a good, good segue into talking about that period of your life. But as we're talking about sort of these expectations and things that people put on us and then you having the burden of that, I'd love for you to, to speak about to that. Yeah, absolutely. So it was an interesting time. I, I applied for a flying scholarship and I was 16 years old. And the flying scholarship would give me 30 hours of free flying with the RAF. And I was like, I, I really want this. And I applied for it and I passed all the levels apart from when it came to the medical. And I remember going through and it was a guy called Wing Commander Diaper. And I just kept thinking, oh, the most terrible name ever. And he just said to me, yeah, so how are you going to remedy your obesity problem? Now, this was a stage where I was representing county at different sports. I was so fit. I was six foot tall. And I don't know how this equates into pounds, but I was 12 stone in weight. And basically, he said to me, you are obese. And I said, well, what, what do you mean? I mean, there was, I was not fat at all. And he said, well, we've looked on our charts and basically our charts do only go up to five foot eight. And I was like, well, I'm six foot tall. And they went, yeah, so we've added a couple of pounds on for that. So we think you should be nine and a half stone. And I said, what? And he said, so you're going to have to lose two and a half stone before we will give you a flying scholarship. And I said, but that's like 40 pounds, isn't it? Oh gosh. So what's that going to be? I need to do the sums very quickly. What's it? 14, isn't it? So nine times 14. There you go. I'm going to work it out very quickly as we're speaking. Times nine point. So that would be 133 pounds. And at six foot tall, I should not have been that. There was no way in the world I was that. And so basically, 
it was shocking. And so I went off and I admittedly, I went onto a diet of Rivitas and um, cottage cheese, you know, and that was all I would eat all the time and chicken and broccoli. And I got down to 10 stones. So I lost two and a bit stone. I got to 10 stone and they were sending me letters saying, you know, come on, you need to lose this weight because otherwise we can't scholarship. And I went to my doctor and I walked in and she walked straight past me in the corridor and she said, oh my God, what has happened? You've lost so much weight. You are really thin. And I said, well, I was told I had an obesity problem. She said, what? What charts are they even looking at? And she got her more modern charts out. And she said, Mandy, at 12 stone, you're really healthy weight for your height. That is crazy. And, and she said, how heavy are they saying you should be? And I said, oh, nine and a half. And she said, well, in which case, let's just say you are that. Let's say <laughs> And I'll never forget because I was so happy I came away. I ate a, a big cream cake and two Cadbury's cream eggs, these like chocolate things. And I ended up having an upset stomach for about three days because I'd had no sugar in my system. And guess what? I lost the remaining weight because I was so poorly with the sugar. So it just made me laugh. I was just like, oh my goodness. Yeah, it was crazy. What a huge obstacle to put in your way. And I don't even know why it's, it strikes me at such the core, but it just, it's so humiliating. and misplaced and it's your body too it's your body right I mean that feels like it was such a almost setting you up to fail because then you're not going to have the energy and the stamina that you would if you were your healthy weight absolutely and I was doing so much sport I was going to the gym in the end I was going to the gym before school I was doing a full day at school with all the sport I did at school and then I would go to the gym after school as well and I was monitoring all the calories I burned it was crazy wow. 16 years old if that's not going to put in place an eating disorder for life, then I don't know what would, you know. Yeah, right. Oh my gosh. So then from there, where, how did you go with your training? So then I got my flying scholarship. I gained my private pilot's license. I paid for it with money I'd, I'd earned on my paper round, which was classic. So it was classic. Hours, I was just like, yeah, I've got it. And then I went off to university and we have another club there run by the RAF called the University Air Squadron. And I joined there really not necessarily just to join the Air Force because women weren't allowed to be pilots in the Air Force at the time. But I joined there because it was a way of keeping my license current. It was a way of continuing to fly. And I did fly. I gained 160 hours through my three years at university. And I don't know how it's run in the States, but it's completely separate. It's just like a club that you join. So you're in a normal university. I was at Birmingham University studying geography and sports science. And then I joined a club. So it was nothing to do with the actual university itself. And so, yeah, I, you could book in for flying when on days when you didn't have many lectures and you'd go along and I flew a lot. So I made the most of it. Didn't come out with the best degree, admittedly, but I did get a lot of flying. And was it what you expected it to be? You know, having that. It was so much better. I absolutely loved, I loved the routine of it. I loved the procedures. I loved the fact that you practice, you could, we would all say armchair fly, you'd practice all these sorties, you'd go up. I love the debriefing and I'd write all my notes down and then I'd make sure I read them before I went flying the next day. And you know, each time it's that incremental learning and it set up such a good skill for life, to be honest, Sylvia, because now when I do a speech or something like that, I always say any feedback, someone will say, yeah, what about this? Great. I'll implement it because it's not often I get the chance to get feedback these days. Yeah. I was going to ask how it shows up in your life in other ways besides flying, some of those early routines and practices. Yeah, I mean, the armchair flying thing, I still do it. You know, if I've got a big event or a big speech, I will run through the whole speech in my mind, practice it so that when I stand up to deliver, I'm, I'm feeling slick, I'm feeling confident because I've just, just practiced it. 
So those sorts of skills, you know, they stay with you, obviously. Yeah. And there's something about having a large goal and breaking it down to it's sort of the, the way athletes have to approach big goals, too. But like you really had to have to be dedicated to the daily practice in order to get to the larger goal. Yeah, you do. I mean, I think when I chose my dream of becoming a fast jet pilot, there was a slightly other problem was that it was an impossible dream because women weren't allowed to do that when I chose to do it. So I was really lucky, though, in my second year at university, they changed the rules, allowing women to fly on the front line. I remember the boss walking in and saying, girls, it's your lucky day. They've opened the doors. And within, within a few days, myself and, and a couple of the other female girls on the squadron all applied. And we went off to a selection. And after, through the selection, I found out I'd failed all of the computer-based tests. So in the UK, you're only allowed to do them twice. They, they last about two to three hours, all to test hand-to-eye coordination, mental agility, memory skills, things like that. And I took them a second time and I failed them again. So these are aptitude tests, supposed aptitude tests, right, based on men. They had no evidence and they didn't do the research about what, how to call out women that could actually do it. Yeah, it was a really interesting one because... When I failed it the second time, I was devastated. And I said to my boss, I'm obviously no good. He said, this is crazy, Mandy. You've proved yourself. I mean, at the time, I'd just won an aerobatics competition against all the other university air squadrons, all who I was against male-sponsored pilots. And I won outright. And yet I couldn't pass these tests. And he said, this is crazy. And he actually became a real champion for my cause. I think I owe him an awful lot, actually, because if it hadn't been for him saying, right, well, let's look at the system and see see how many women are failing it. And the majority of the women at the time were failing the tests compared to about 70% of men that were passing them. And so he asked the Air Force to, to look at this as a test case. And, and they, in the end, they took me on. But I did get a letter from them. It was when I was going through officer training. I had to sign up for a commission initially as an air traffic controller, which was a really big deal because if you think, well, for myself, I was signing up to serve for 16 years in a job that although I wanted to be in the military, I had no desire to become an air traffic controller, but I was signing up for a career with the hope and with this visualization. And I'd always had this really powerful vision of myself flying. And I truly believed I would make it. You know, when anyone asked me, what's your branch? I would say, well, I'm air traffic control, but I will be changing to pilot. And they were like, yeah, right. Of course you will. Oh, that's so interesting. But that was the mindset. And then when I got my letter halfway through officer training and it said, dear flying officer Wells, which was my name, at the time, um, the RAF will give you your branch change to pilot. I was like, yes. Wow. I've broken them down. And it then said that I was being taken on as a test case and they wanted to find out how far I'd get before I failed. So can you imagine this? So this is my second big hurdle is that up to that point, I'd been a really very, very confident young lady. My mum had always had this sort of belief, you can do it. Why shouldn't it be you? If it's going to be anyone, you know, you'll position yourself in the right place. And then suddenly I had the Air Force in black and white telling me I was being set up to fail. That was really tough, to be honest, Sylvia, because that planted what I now know, of course, to be the seeds of doubt, the seeds of imposter syndrome, which we didn't have a name for it then. But I would then go back to that. It was almost my default setting. So every time I would struggle, I'd go back in my own mind and I'd think, gosh, is this as far as I get because I'm not good enough? Mm -hmm. That was another huge mental block to try to get over. So you were really carrying a lot of stress during that time. I don't know, actually. (laughs) Or if not, how did you manage it? I just think, well, the camaraderie is brilliant. So the people going through your courses with you are fantastic. 
And we would do a lot of sport in the evening. We would often hit the bar, not necessarily if we're flying the next day, don't worry. But, you know, there was a really good, strong camaraderie and, and team spirit. And so actually, although it was stressful and people were, you know, not making the grade at certain stages and they would leave the course, but there was this absolute core of us who were like my brothers in arms, my best friends. I'm godparents to many of their children and that side of things. And we'll stay really, really close. And basically, I think there was that banter. And I think the military, they always say about the military humour that it's, it's so harsh and the banter, it can be very tough. But actually, I think by doing that, I don't know, it makes you a bit hardened to things. And yeah, I don't know if I felt that stressed when I was going through that, that stage. And also, I had 160 hours of flying already. So when I started a flying training, I found the first bit of breeze, you know, graduating right at the top level of all the courses, even on the next stage, which was the Tucano, which was sort of the one that sort of, I think it's your T37, that sort of level, goes at about 240 miles an hour, that sort of thing, 240 knots. And I was still pretty good then. So actually, it was only really when I got to the fast jet train at the Hawk that actually I suddenly realized, gosh, this is this is really tough. Yeah. So there is this incremental sort of series I'm seeing of during university. It was, it sounds like it was a pretty easy as far as it wasn't stressful. Flying was just something you learned and there was incremental improvement and you were able to achieve what you wanted to. And then, and then it sort of, I have this, this image of like these like walls starting to be put around you and tests that you're put through. And then of course, the test of your confidence too, with being a test case and the pressure that that was on you. And it, it seems to me that you were able to compartmentalize that and not have that drain you. But yeah, and then the team aspect, which then I think that from what I sense, like you really drew from that team. And then that you learned how to be a team player too, which is different than being a leader. But I'm wondering if you could speak to that too, because you do a lot of work talking about leadership but of course, there's an important team player part of that as well. Yeah, we often say the followership is just as important. Exactly. It's learning when, when you need to step up, but also when you, when you just need to be a supportive team member. And I think it's, that is really, really important, actually. I want to just bring touch on one of the points that you mentioned there, which was that compartmentalizing. And I think that's a really fascinating word. And I think when you talk to a lot of people who have achieved perhaps fast jet level, that side of things, they do have the ability to compartmentalize. So you'll be on a flight, for example, and something happens, you realize that you've not done very well on it. That's a potential fail maybe on that flight. But you have the ability to go, well, that's fine. I can't do anything about that now. I'm going to put that behind me, compartmentalize it totally. I'm going to move on. And there was a huge distinction between those people that could do that and the ones that self-flagellated and said, oh my goodness, that's happened. And they would just start to talk themselves in this awful, awful circle. And they would fail the whole trip because they couldn't put it behind them. And that whole ability, I think, to compartmentalize is something that actually, when you look at high achieving people, they, they tend to be able to do that a lot better than others sometimes as well. I think that comes with a little resilience too. And it's also just to continue on this, I think it comes with the importance of also then the debrief. Because if we just compartmentalize, then we have this you know, huge closet of like things that we've never actually processed, which isn't beneficial on either sort of a professional level, but also an emotional level as well. Yeah, and, and actually, it's something that's really held me in good stead for doing speeches. So in lockdown, for example, I had two teenage boys. They were 15 and 16 in lockdown. They were not 
particularly in, interested in academia at all. And they refused to do any work. And so I was trying to home educate these two boys who had no desire to do it. Literally, we were clashing. We were ending with these screaming arguments. And I'm a really positive person. And this was real. And I don't like confrontation as well. This was really upsetting me. Meanwhile, I was building my business as a keynote motivational. (laughs) And I was literally going from screaming downstairs and crying to going, and I'm in my office and I'd put some lipstick on, I'd get on the line and I'd go, hi, everyone. And within, you know, I used to think, my gosh, how can you even do this, Mandy? You're distraught minutes ago, but you have the ability to stop that, compartmentalize it. And one thing I would say is that it's why it goes well with that fake it till you make it or fake it till you feel it. Because actually, it doesn't work for mental health, huge mental health problems. But if you're feeling a bit low, you've had an argument with your partner and then you go to a, a meal out with friends and you pretend that you're happy with each other. By the end of the night, you probably will be happy with each other because you know what you've pretended. And when it's the same as when you're speaking, so you'll be there putting all this positive energy down the screen. By the end of it, I was genuinely feeling great. All the same endorphins have been released, whether you're pretending that you're happy or whether you actually are happy. Mm -hmm. They would know this as well, and they'd know that the second I walked out, I would then be in a good mood. So then they would try me with the other things that they wanted because they're (laughs) a different frame of mind. Blooming children. So yeah, they're too wise. Well, it is. You know, it's interesting. I, I totally can understand what you're saying. And there is something about, the way that our sort of body goes through, you know, whether we're telling it to do it or it's motivated by some other thing, if we're, our body goes through sort of the happy gestures <laughs> or the positive gestures, then cognitively, then we identify those as, oh, I guess she's happy now. <laughs> and then we're like, okay, we'll be happy. I mean, this is super simplistic, but there is something about the, I guess what I'm getting at and supporting what you're saying is that the, the way that our body goes through something, then often informs the way we're thinking about it, which then kind of feeds back rather than like all it being in our head. And okay, well, how do I get in a positive mindset? Like, well, just if be positive, and then that's a really good place to start without hopefully repressing the things, which is, we don't want to do that. But there's a place for that as well, processing everything. Definitely. Now, I forgot you asked me a question, but being obviously going through the menopause now, I can't remember what the... (laughs) Oh, dear, you're going to test me on that. So the question was about the teamwork, because I know that, right, right, you know, there's this teamwork and there's the leadership work and the followership and sort of how you present that. Yeah. So I think the one thing, again, when you're going through, for example, officer training is very much around the leadership training. But as you're doing your leadership training and and becoming an officer, you realize that if you're constantly trying to usurp the leadership of the person that's meant to be in that leadership role, that's not helpful either. And so very quickly, you learn followership skills. You learn how to support, how to encourage and how to offer, but not tell, not to try to step in. And I felt that was pushed. I really used that skill, actually. I, I climbed up Kilimanjaro three years ago with 20 women. My biggest worry is I've never worked, I've never worked with women before. And I thought, oh my goodness, how's that going to be? Is it, is it going to be? And it was the best experience of my life. Genuinely, hands down, absolutely loved it. And I was not there in a leadership role in any way, shape or form. I was just one of the team. And, you know, I am quite alpha. I am quite a red character. I, I do love and I do enjoy leading. And 
you know, I wasn't there. And I, I really noticed that very early on, we had our leader and we had our deputy, that my job was not to lead. And so I had to keep on catching myself. I had to keep on saying, actually, that's not your role, Mandy. Support, support, support. And so I, I really had to keep on catching myself all the time. And that is, again, is a skill set you also need to develop as well. What was the biggest challenge for you in that? Oh, my goodness. Well, on the night that before we were due to summit, so I was really fit. I was fitter than I've probably ever been in my life. And I was, I'd done so much training for it. And then you summit on the night of day five. And on the night of day four, I was hit down by, and it wasn't altitude sickness. It was a horrific stomach bug. I had not anything coming up, but a lot was going down. It was not pleasant at all. And I was up the whole night and I was literally running to the toilet block and, and hyperventilating because there was no oxygen as well. I felt horrific. I worked, woke up in the morning. Well, I didn't even go to sleep, but I felt like I'd been hit by a train. I just thought, how am I even going to get out of bed? And my leader said, Mandy, I'm not entirely sure you're going to make this now. So I went back to my old mantra of controlling the controllables. And if you can't let it go. And I thought, right, what can I do about it? And I thought, right, you're really dehydrated. So I had about eight litres of water. I literally thought you're going to flush your system out. I had a lot of diorolite and a lot of uh, Imodium to block me up. Basically, we had to walk that day up to the base camp and then we were to go to bed for a couple of hours. And actually, I was about to go to bed and I was feeling horrific. And one of these really wonderful members of the team, she'd been struggling a lot and she was a very underconfident person. And her husband had said, Mandy, if I get her there, you make sure she gets up. And I was like, I absolutely will. I saw her outside the toilet, but she said, I'm not going to summit tonight. And I said, what? She said, I just can't do it. I'm not good enough to. And I said, right, okay. And I thought, oh my God, I was absolutely dying. I was so poorly. And I said, let's go back to your tent. And I spent an hour. We just went through. I went through visualization exercises of her meeting up with her daughter that was at university and telling her about the summit night, how she got to the top first how she felt, how, what the emotion was like, reflecting in her daughter's face, how proud she was of her mum. This was her thing. It was going to be her story. And in the end, she did summit. And guess what? She was the first at the top. Oh, my goodness. And so you know what? It was worth it, but I didn't get to sleep. And so I felt even worse. And so that the next that summit night was horrific. And I didn't get to walk really with any of my team because I was right at the back and I kept on having to nip behind rocks to be very poorly. And it was a minus 15. It was a blizzard and it was a complete whiteout. In fact, one of our Sherpas described it as the worst weather conditions in 300 summit attempts that he'd had. Wow. Every time I caught my team up, they'd finish their break. Oh, <laughs> they would just stay with me for a couple of minutes. I, did, I cried quite a lot. And Eventually, I caught them up at this point called Stella Point, which is where you've hit the, the highest steep bit, and then it flattens out, and it's about an hour of gently, gentle ascent, and um, I managed to catch them up for that bit. So I did get to the top with my team, which was wonderful, but it didn't take six. It took us about nine and a half hours. Wow. It was a whiteout. We could see nothing apart from the sign. We were like, I held this flag, and I always say, I talk about it in my motivational speech when I say, a picture doesn't always paint a thousand words because I look really happy. Actually, I held this flag. I smiled. I went, get me off this bloody <laughs> And then I burst into tears and cried the whole way down. Oh my gosh. Just the outpouring of everything that it took to get up there. It was incredible. And we call it, it was really funny. The leader said to us, there's different types of fun. 
There's grade one fun when you're having fun with your friends. There's grade two fun where it's tough, but still enjoyable. And then there's grade three fun where there's no enjoyment in it whatsoever. But afterwards, the sense of satisfaction will be overwhelming. And I was like, this is grade three. Oh my gosh, that is really, really funny. I was just thinking about that when it's really hot where I am. And my husband and I, were, we're runners. And there are also a lot of mountains where we are. And we both went on a really hard run yesterday. And we were like, why is this so fun? It's like 90% humidity and 95 degrees. And it was definitely, I love that. It's, now I'm going to tell him it was definitely a stage three fun. That's all. Nothing fun during, all after. So interesting. You know, the, the setbacks and how you just really pushed through that is, there's so many lessons to that. How did it change you afterwards, that trip? It made me realize I'd really missed out on the camaraderie because when I'd left the Air Force, I'd set up my own business and I'd been work, really working as an individual, well, with my husband occasionally, but predominantly by myself. And although I meet a lot of people because I'm sort of parachuted in, I'll join a group for maybe a day, two days max. I'm always really by myself. So I'm very good at meeting people initially, chatting away, but there's no sort of long-term bond there. And then I did this trip and I thought, my goodness, that's what I have missed. I really miss that bonding, that intimate feeling that you get from a, a really, from a shared experience like that, like going through fast, fast jet training, like going to a war zone. You know, the bond that you have, when I meet up with all the guys who I served in Iraq with, Actually, I walk in and within seconds, you're talking as if you haven't not seen each other 10 years. You know, you're, you're, you see the bond is there and it's, it's incredible that shared experiences. Yeah. I want to touch a little bit more on the peak experience you had when you were flying the fast jet. And let's maybe just start with what that experience was like for you once you arrived as being a female fast jet flyer. Yeah. So the training was phenomenal. I nearly failed the very final stages of fast jet training, but my team basically took me out on our bikes and they'd stuck wings on their bikes and they ended up cycling around this parade square, yelling 30 left and you know 60 right and doing the, the, all these battle turns that was the thing I'd been failing. And when I trip, flew the trip the next day, my instructor just said, Mandy, you're this is like flying with a different pilot. What's happened? And I told him what the guys had done. He just said, wow, that is phenomenal. And it was that realization of having this team that were really selfless because we were in competition to some degree. You know, there are very few slots on the next courses and you know, this competition to fly. It was the Harrier, the Jaguar, the Tornado. And up to that point, they had been guaranteed a place starting in about two to three months time. And suddenly, because I passed, I was number seven. And one of them maybe jeopardized their own career advancement. So that was an incredible pivotal moment for myself of recognizing the strength of the team and then when I finished the Hawk, did gain my RAF wings, went off to fly the Tornado GR4. And I was thrilled to get the Tornado because I always loved low level. I'd loved navigation and that side of things, which was really unusual because I don't think many women really that were going through with me, a lot of them chose the fighters. They enjoyed more air-to-air -air combat than the that ground attack role. But I loved it. I loved the precision of it. And it fitted with my brain of process and results sort of thing. And yeah, the training was phenomenal. And sitting in the, the tornado for the first time, it's a beast of an aircraft. It's the sort of equivalent of your F-15. It's that sort of size. It's incredibly powerful, two big engines. And first time I was flying with Afterburner as well. And you'd done all these simulator trips. And so you were really okay with the cockpit, how it all worked. But getting in that aircraft for the first time, I'll never forget. And I, I went through all the 
the mouth music, you know, because we do all of our checks completely by memory. And I was going through it and I was like, and light one burner, light the second. I was like, oh my God. And the, the guy in the back just went, oh, I've never heard that reaction before. Because I just could not believe the thrust. And when I put lit the burners fully up to 100%, I was thrust back in my seat. And I just remember having this smile. I said, I can't take this smile off my face. And he was like, God, this is brilliant. He said, <laughs> loving flying with you, Mandy. I've always been quite passionate. So um, yeah, brilliant. And it was just such a phenomenal jet. It did what it said on the tin. It, it has this fantastic system called terrain following radar. So we'd come on exercises out to the States to red flag and fly out of Nellis all through Arizona and everything. And it was phenomenal. On one occasion, we were night flying and nobody else could get down below the cloud apart from us because we have autopilot. You can engage the terrain following radar, step it down on the pilot, and we can fly at 250 feet. 250 feet, no hands. No hands, touching nothing, drop live weapons on target without seeing anything. And I, I did it in Canada. It was the first time in training. And I remember basically it was a pitch black night and we stepped this terrain following radar down. And I said, oh my God, I can't see anything. But you're talking, it was really rigid, your speech. You know, you're looking at this thing called an e-scope, which is basically giving you the terrain in front of you. And you're sort of saying, okay, incline coming up, expecting the aircraft to pull up in three, two, one, aircraft is pulling up. Right, leveling out. Okay, I can see we will be descending in two, three, down. And so you're giving a running commentary about three seconds before to basically have an expectation of what is the jet going to do? Does it do it? And if it doesn't, you're ready to cut out, immediate cut out, and you'd pull up, you'd go up through through the cloud vertically. And we were doing this, and I could see nothing at all. And then suddenly the moonlight must have broken through the cloud. And we were in this massive valley in Canada, literally granite on either side of us. And I just thought, oh my God, this is phenomenal. We have got ourselves into this valley. We are flying down it, approaching a target in the woods. And uh, we had forward air controllers on the ground. They were basically highlighting a target with a laser pod. And we were coming in and we were dropping our weapons and all the rest of it. And it was phenomenal. And we basically, I didn't touch the aircraft from the moment we took off almost when, when I engaged it to the moment I landed. And what speed are you going? Uh, about 500 miles an hour. And what does that feel like for your body? It's fine. Yeah. It's, I mean, you, you, you're pulling G-force, but you get very used to it. I mean, I was, I was hearing your podcast with Mace uh, when she was talking about the, uh, gosh, it was phenomenal when she was talking about the aerobatics, obviously flying with the team. And she was saying, yeah, we, we trim the aircraft fully down so that we can be constantly pulling against it. I was thinking, oh my gosh, for an entire formation display that you're pulling because it's that much more sensitive. That's really tough. I, I never found it quite so tough. I mean, I'm quite a, a big character. I mean, I'm, I'm quite a strong person. So I never found it too hard physically. You're being kicked in the stomach constantly and you're, you've got your G-suit tightening around your legs. You're going through anti-G straining maneuvers, which I always thought were hilariously funny because it was always described as, just imagine you're having a huge poo. I was like, lovely, lovely. I think you sort of take it for granted, but you really are in touch with parts of your body that the civilians are not. I mean, it's part of a day, a day in the life of for you, but when you were during that phase, but it's really fascinating. The funniest one I ever had, though, was when we were going through aviation medicine school and we were learning about flying at very high level and we were doing pressurized breathing. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but basically 
you put your oxygen mask on and normally you're you know you're being delivered oxygen at whatever percentage you're needed to so that you're getting the right partial pressure for you but once you go above a certain height even that oxygen will not be enough to get into your system so it has to be delivered with pressure but the problem is if you can imagine the second you open your mouth your mouth fills with the air and the oxygen because it's basically trying to be forced constantly into your face And so you have to start pursing your lips and speaking in a very funny voice to not allow all the oxygen to come in at one go. Because if you open your mouth, literally you feel your cheeks expand. And I was sitting opposite these guys. I've got a really bad laugh anyway. I sort of went and they said, okay, make a radio call. So I said, this is Unicorn 2 And at which point the guy started laughing opposite me. I opened my mouth to laugh. (laughs) (laughs) I just couldn't stop laughing because the oxygen was being forced into my mouth. I was going, (laughs) and they were all, um, they had to turn the machines off. We had to start again. Oh my gosh. I want to ask you one thing about the training versus being in actual combat and how not to kind of tune up the volume in a serious level, but I'm just, I don't get an opportunity too often to really talk to someone who's really been in that environment. And I'm just really interested in like, it's it's an exercise and you've trained for it. And it's a precision exercise for you, which is, as you've said, like part of your personality. But obviously there are like real consequences of, of what you're doing. And how do you sort of process that in like when the real time when you're, you know, the, the quite a few times that you've been in really active combat zones? Yeah. So when you've done all the training, as you say, so you're happy with how the aircraft flies, you're happy with the procedures, the protocols, the processes. And then you get over to, I was based out of um, Ali al-Salem in Kuwait, and we were flying, defending the no-fly zone over southern Iraq. It was the period between the two Gulf Wars. And the temperature, for starters, I mean, in the UK, we, we think it's hot when it gets to sort of 25. But this was like 45 degrees. And so I couldn't believe the pressure on your body, just the physicality of flying in that heat. The aircraft takes much longer to get airborne, of course, because it's a much thinner, less dense air when you're at that temperature. But also the aircraft, the Tornado is quite an old aeroplane. When all the air conditioning systems basically channeled towards keeping the avionics cool, and this was before it had an upgrade. And so when we got in the jets, we would have our we're in our flying suits, but you also have your underwear, your thermal underwear on between the flying suit and your skin in case, because the flying suit is fire retardant, but you would boil underneath it if you didn't have a layer between you and the flying suit. So you've got your thermal underwear on in 45 degrees, plus you've got a combat survival waistcoat, plus you've got a life support jacket, plus you've got your G suit on, you know, I hadn't been able to go to the toilet right before getting airborne because all the guys would have a last minute we at the edge of the hangars. I couldn't because I'd have to stra- unstrap the whole, take all my kit off. We'd get in and then we'd basically start the aircraft up and all the aircon was on the avionics, nothing to us. You're so hot that your entire kit is soaking wet. By the time you pull down the canopy, at one point we put temperature sensors in, got to 70 degrees in the aircraft. So you're trying to drink as much fluid as you can, but also I had no ability to go to the toilet in the aeroplane. So I, I wanted to drink some, but not enough, not too much. And then we get airborne and you're soaking wet. I mean, every bit of your body is, your whole clothing is soaking. And the second you get airborne, the air conditioning kicks into you and suddenly you freeze because you're wet already. So now you're freezing cold. 
plus you're in this very, very different environment and, and flying over, over Iraq, it was basically tumbleweed in certain areas. It was just desert with the odd road. And, you know, we had all the targets and you're trying to spot your wingman. And my biggest fear was letting my team down. And my first mission, my very first mission was actually a bombing mission. And I couldn't believe I'd been asked to go on it because I thought, oh, they'll probably send me up on a few reconnaissance trips. And they said, right, Mandy, uh, tonight's mission is a bombing mission. And apparently the guy that was leading it said, my eyes opened like saucers. And I was like, okay, right. Um, But I think it's very interesting. At that point, you're so far through the process. I don't know. It's a very interesting one on the psychology of it. It's like you've trained to, to play soccer at the highest level. And finally, you've been picked to play in the match. This is your moment. And so it sounds a bit bloodthirsty and it's not that at all. It's just that you've trained so hard, you want to do the job that you've been trained to do. And so yes, it is going to war. Yes, it is potentially dropping weapons. The one thing that always sat really well with myself was the rules of engagement were really strict out there. And at the time, we were often prosecuting attacks on solely military targets. But it was always that there was this rule where if there was any civilian collateral damage at all, we were not to drop our weapons. And that sat really well with me. So I had one occasion, and in fact, it was his first first occasion as well, whereby we just didn't get quite lined up enough. The guy had the target, had all the area. He couldn't specifically locate the exact target. He couldn't break it out as to, to where it was compared to the rest of it. And so we didn't drop that night. And actually, I'd had an incident where I had dropped a weapon on the ranges. It was at sea on a raft. I was with a junior navigator, and the two of us had been told we had this live weapon, and we had this opportunity to go and drop it for real before we went to the Gulf so we would know how it felt to drop a live weapon. And we went out and we dropped a weapon on what was a cresting wave. My navigator thought he had the target. When he looked in detail afterwards, it was simply where a wave had crested and it was picking up a return on his radar and it wasn't the target. And it was the best learning I had because when I was writing my book, we actually, myself and my friend that we were writing it together with, we were discussing it and, and it was this phenomenal feeling. He said, my goodness, if if you hadn't dropped then, it was the learning, though, of you don't have to drop. If you haven't identified your target, there's no ego. There's no need to drop. And it was the best learning I had for the, when I got to the war because it was a case of processing, follow the process. If it's not there, you don't drop. And on one occasion, we had a, a man on a, with a camel and he was walking right on the edge, but he would have been potentially hit by some shrapnel or something from our weapon. And so I was at three, two, and my navigator went, stop, stop, stop. And I was literally about to touch, release the weapon. And I just shut the, the top of the uh, cap over the top of the weapons release button, made my switches safe, pulled off target, no discussion. And then when we left, it's like, what happened? He said, oh, yeah, there's a guy, you'll see him on the video. And you can just see him wandering across with his, his static traveler. I like that. I like the fact that it was this very clear black and white. Yeah, your targets were really clear. I can understand that. Well, thanks for sharing a little bit of that with me and my audience. You know, I think I have such a diverse audience and I think it is important for civilians to just hear like really what this is like, you know, what it's really like and the psychology behind it. And we're all impacted on the way our country is defended. And yeah. yeah. One of the, the scariest nights I ever had actually was when um, we were targeted by a surface to air missile, which we managed to evade. And it was sent in a heat-seeking mode and we put our flares out, our countermeasures out. We evaded the missile and basically the whole mission changed. There was so many American pilots airborne that night as well. 
I was leading my first ever mission that night. And, you know, despite being the most junior within my team, I continued to lead that mission through the possibly was now the most complex sortie I'd ever been involved in. I would love to talk about how you rounded out your career and also how becoming a parent worked with that transition. Yeah, it was tough. So I was nearing the end of my tour, a tour on the tornadoes, and my husband and I, and he's quite a bit older than me, decided that we would like to have children. We started to try to have have a, a baby. But basically, when I look back, I think there's only one occasion when I could have possibly got pregnant. <laughs> there are some essential parts of that being together is one of them. <laughs> yeah, it really helps, apparently. And he was in the Navy at the time. So it was like, never the twain shall meet. If we ever see each other, it's like, our oh, paths crossed quickly. No. <laughs> uh, okay. um, yeah, a year later, and we finally fell pregnant. And I didn't know I was pregnant then because it had been such a long time of trying. And well, not such a long time, but a year of trying. I carried on flying and basically I ended up miscarrying my baby because I think I'd carried on flying and I was then being hit in the stomach constantly by a GC. I don't think it's particularly helpful. And so I miscarried and and I finally found out I was pregnant and I told my medical examiner and then you're grounded immediately. And so basically all the guys were going, why is Mandy not flying? Why is Mandy not flying? I was thinking, well, I'm not telling you why I'm not flying because the baby's not even viable yet. You know, it's sort of not at the 12-week stage. But I told my boss that. And then I miscarried. And it was the day, I miscarried on the day when I was organizing the squadron's 90th anniversary. So we were the oldest fixed-wing squadron in the Air Force. And I'd been the officer in charge of organizing this huge, um, big celebration. And I miscarried that day. And I went to hospital. I was told that that was that. I was devastated. I did miss the Friday, but on the Saturday, which was the big black tie dinner, a sit-down meal for 450 people. Every senior officer in the Air Force was there and I'd organized it. And so again, compartmentalized my feeling, managed to get through the whole weekend, held it together. And then on the Monday, I had a couple of days off just to sob at home and mourn the loss. But by then, then of course I could fly again. And so all the guys going, why is Mandy flying again? Why anyway, so it was all at this point I managed to sort out going into a ground job whereby I then said to my my posting officer, yeah, I'm happy to carry on doing that because obviously if I want to have children, I don't want to be in a situation where I'm constantly flying and then grounding and then not. So I moved into a ground job. I got pregnant very, very quickly because actually, guess what? We then saw each other. Yeah, right. yeah, I had two sons in very quick succession. It's called a very productive ground tour. <laughs> and then at the end of the ground tour, basically I said, again, I contacted my posting officer to say, right, what's next? And he said, right, Mandy, you're straight back to the front line. And at the time, Afghanistan, our involvement in Afghanistan was just kicking off. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I, I can't do that. You know, I've got I had a four-month-old baby. I was still breastfeeding, and I had a 21-month-old. I said, that's not going to work. He said, okay, well, your only other option is to become an instructor. And it was in Wales, and we were living down south. And my husband by then was an airline pilot flying out of London. And I thought, if I do go up to Wales, it's going to be by myself as a single mum. I had no support really from my family. They all had their own lives. And I thought, gosh, I'm, I'm going to be going for single mum and we'll have night flying. And what happens if you divert? Who's going to look after my children? I found a job that was more local to myself, actually. It was half an hour from my home. It was, a, it was described as being the most boring job known to any pilot. And it was basically looking after the entire aircraft document set for the tornado. And it had to be a pilot that did the job. And it fitted perfectly. It was nine to five. It was Monday to Friday. I could then have a routine that would work with children. But I was told if I took that job, 
I could kiss goodbye to a career. I could never be promoted out of it. It was a really big moment for myself, really, because I thought, you know what, I'd, I'd always enjoyed leadership. I'd always hoped I would excel within the forces. And suddenly, actually, I was being told that really that was the end. If I took that job, I'd keep a job, but I wasn't going to go anywhere. And I made the choice to do it because I wanted to be a mum. I wanted to bring my children up. But yeah, I was at that point basically saying goodbye to my career. And I did that for the next four years until I, I left the Air Force. And it was, it was tough. It was really, really tough. I had the most supportive boss ever. And when my children started preschool and school, actually, I sort of said, oh, sir, you know, is there any chance I could leave a little bit early? And he's like, absolutely, Mandy. 100% support in every aspect. He was brilliant. And again, he was one of those pivotal moments where I realized I was writing this entire business case as to why I could work at these different hours. And he just went, yeah, that's fine. I went, no, I've written it all up. I want to tell you all my reasons. He goes, I'm happy, Mandy. I was like, no, there's more. I must tell you it all. But it was brilliant. And he was really supportive, as were all, all the guys. And I was working with a, a load of people who had flown phantoms and lightnings and all these historic aircraft. And my goodness, the banter and the, it was like, well, your grandparents. It's fantastic. So do you think it's changed or it's changing that women have this, you know, for you, that you had kids and you were saying goodbye to that career in the same moment and they really weren't given a choice. Do you think that's changed or is changing? It has very much changed, actually. So I have spoken to so many people since. One thing which was really lovely after my book, lots of people that were serving got in touch with me and just said, I just want to tell you, Mandy, you know, I've had either a similar experience or this has happened or this has changed. Our current chief of the air staff, who's like the the top person within the Air Force, happened to be my posting officer. He was the one that told me this career moment. And he has made it his mission to get as many women through the pipeline as possible to really ramp up those levels. So, yeah, we are seeing changes happening. It's just been slow. I mean, our is to get to 30 percent female in the armed forces by 2030. And I just don't think we have a hope really of achieving that goal. And certainly there's very few fast jet pilots still, which are women. Yeah, it was slow. And then you were at the leading edge of it. So it's, that's your, the impact that you have is on the future generations, not necessarily on, on your career that you've taken in other directions. One last question I have about the parenting. How did your view of risk change when you became a parent? Massively. I think it does. And I think it'd be really interesting to know, actually, for men, whether it changes to quite the same degree. Because I think up to that point, I'd always been, I wouldn't say selfish, but I'd have that opinion that if I were to die, that of course people would be upset, you know, my family and my husband, and but no one was dependent on you. And the second you have children, that adversity to risk does increase, I think. And you just think, my goodness, it would ruin their lives if I were to die. And they are dependent upon me to provide for them and, and to be there for them. And, and it didn't change my flying, but it definitely, because I've always been a very safe, I've always been, you know, absolutely by the book. But it certainly, I used to have little words that I would use. And there was one of the words was just, I don't know, in a just culture way, but as in a, well, I can just make that. Or I can just, oh, I can just about, oh, is the cloud within limit? Oh, it's just about. As soon as I heard myself saying the word just, I would say, actually, it's not. If you're thinking it's just about, it means it's right, right on the margins. Don't challenge it. And that would be my little catch-all that I would stop myself from doing things if I heard myself saying just. And that was my little banker to say, Mandy, back off a bit. Get home tonight. 
It does shift. It does shift the way we think, for sure. You've mentioned your book a couple of times, and I would love to talk about that. Now, the title I love, An Officer, Not a Gentleman. For, tell us just about the title first. How did that come about? It was actually just one of the chapters, to be honest, at one point, because I, w- I wanted to call it Bird's Eye View, which I thought was a brilliant title. But um, my call sign was Big Bird. Whether I wanted it or not, I was hoping for Ice Maiden, but uh, I was given Big Bird. Sesame <laughs> Street had too big a part to play. What can I say? I'm being six foot tall. So I thought it would be a great idea because it would give you a bird's eye view, a different perspective. But my husband basically kept saying, people have tried to get away from this. It's, it feels such a backward step to be using bird in a derogatory way. And I was like, no, but it's funny. He said, no, Mandy, I think it will just create more. And, and it was through discussions actually with um, one of my old colleagues as well. And he said, I love your chapter title from chapter two, Officer Not a Gentleman. He said, that would be brilliant. And when we got it together with the formatting for the book cover, it just worked brilliantly. And I just went, actually, it might have been called Break Right as well at one point, but I went putting that on the written cover instead. Yeah, I think it's a great title. And what was your goal in writing the book? Well, I'd never really wanted to write a book. And the only reason I did it was because every time I did a speech, everyone said to me, have you written a book? And I said, no, no, no. And again, I put myself into a bracket where I said, I'm not a writer. And it's always been, I've always edged away from writing. And I can even feel when I've got, you know, to write blogs or something like that, I think, oh gosh, I don't want to do it. I'll do podcasts, love talking, but I really, really, you know, love the written word. And so I then started saying not yet. And then one of my best friends from university basically was just finishing a job with the BBC as a journalist. And we were chatting and he said, well, why don't we do it together? And it seemed like this perfect fit because he'd always had a really keen interest on flying. And so the two of us wrote An Officer Not a Gentleman together. And we worked really hand in hand as well. But he's just got such a beautiful way of writing. And he knew me. He knew me inside out. So he knew my voice. He knew my humor. And so when we could work together, then we could actually come up with a fantastic product. Yeah, it's really it's a great book. It's a great read. I've got a chance to listen to it on Audible which I love doing on my long walks and runs. And, you know, you don't have to be a pilot to understand. And in fact, the skills and the lessons of resilience and risk management, leadership, they're so transferable. And I just, I find it a very accessible book and, and fun. And I love the examples you give, especially of Emily in the end. Oh, was she on your grade three walk that run the other day up the mountain? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, she should have been, right? Yeah. So no, it's, in fact, it's a lovely story. So I, when I left the Air Force, I signed up to become a volunteer pilot, fly air cadets, because it was how I started. And I'm just of that mindset, you can't be what you can't see still. And we still don't have enough female role models. And so I didn't want young, these new aviatrixes of the future coming through and never seeing any other female pilots. So I did it for nine years. and. I flew with this girl and she was my last cadet of the day. I'd already done about nine. I was really tired, quite emotional. And I saw her and she had shoulders bent over, quite an angry look on her face. And I said, hi, I'm Mandy Hickson. What's your name? She was like, Emily, quite a classic teenager. And she didn't appear to be that engaged. And We got airborne and she actually turned out to be one of the most natural pilots in that raw state. And I've only really met a few of these in my life. You have a lot of people that are good and they put the work in and they are therefore very good. But there's very few pilots that you actually fly and they are naturals. They are born to do it. And she was one of those people. And at the end, when we landed and I said, you know, is this something you might want to do? And she said, oh, but you're so, you know, 
And I said, you're really good. I'll bet you said it to everyone. I was like, I've never said it to anyone. You're genuinely brilliant. And she looked at me and we, we finally connected. And she said, oh my goodness, this is all I've ever wanted to do. I've always wanted to be a pilot since I sat on my dad's shoulders at an air show. And I've been so scared that I wasn't going to be able to achieve it. that I decided not to show you I was interested. And it was this, oh my goodness, it was such an emotional moment because I think it's a life lesson for us all is that sometimes when you really want something, we back away from it at the very final stages. We don't grab it with both hands. And it's because we're basically putting in a protection level. In the back of our minds, we can always then think, yeah, it's because I didn't try enough. It's because I didn't give it 100%. If I'd given it 100%, I probably would have achieved it. But actually, I've got this protection. And I love Sheryl Sandberg's book where she talks in her leaning about leaning towards the opportunities and not backing away. And it's just something I've always therefore kept in the back of my mind about when people say, can I do something? I think, oh no. And I feel, can I? And then I think, you lean towards it. Lean it, grab it with both hands. And basically, this whole story came out. I said, how are you doing at school? And she said, I hate school. And I was like, but this is joining the dots. This is now your purpose. And you could see the cogs turning. That moment, the same moment that I had when she suddenly went, oh my gosh, I can do this. And I saw her a year later and she said, Mandy, oh, she said, oh, flight attendant Hickson, I just wanted to tell you, I got all my exams, I'm doing my A-levels and I want to be a pilot just like you. And it was these three words. And it literally, even when I say it now, I get goosebumps all over my skin because at that moment, I just trained to be an airline pilot. I'd left the Air Force. I'd just gained my commercial pilot's license. I was about to start with the airlines. And I never really wanted to do that. That was not where my heart was. My heart actually sat in a very different place. And I realized that just like you, it's far more important to create a legacy, to actually be that person that youngsters could actually respond to, that you can encourage them, that they can see somebody that's achieved it. And suddenly that is way more important than basically taking people on holiday. And that's when I changed my flight path completely and ended up joining, basically setting up my own company and becoming a keynote speaker. Oh, that's so interesting. So it became a pivotal moment back to you because of her saying, just like you. And then you said, well, just like me, I better be me and not just follow the usual sequence, which is to go into the airlines. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's a really good life lesson that so often things and we think we're doing it because, oh, we're helping others. We think we're being really good people. But actually in the giving, and I'm about to sound a bit cliched here and I'm not meaning to, but in the giving, you actually get so much back. And it's often those moments you're not expecting it. It's like in lockdown, for example, I volunteered at my local hospital and, and I gave them my full resume as to what I could do to help them. And they said, yeah, can you go into the basement in the laundry and fold all of the scrubs for our doctors? And doctors? <laughs> I've got more skill sets than that. But I did it, I did it actually for 18 months. Once a week, I'd go in. My husband was doing it as well. And actually, again, it was a raw level of giving something back. It gave me a purpose when in the time in COVID, we were lacking purpose a little. But also it made me remember, I was part of a team. It made me remember that actually we're all cogs in a machine. There can be no ego in those sorts of teams. And you know what? If the doctors didn't have the scrubs and the nurses didn't have those, those kit to wear, well, then there's a stopping point and actually could provide an essential service. And so it's humbling to do those things. And I think sometimes it is in the giving that we, we actually learn a lot more about ourselves. Yeah, I love that. I love that example. There is so much and just putting yourself out there and back to what you were saying before, we get in our way so our own way so often. That can be, um, that's not a benefit to ourselves or the people around us. 
I love that you called that out. It's an amazing story. So what do you have on tap now? What's, what are you doing? What do you, what's ahead? I sort of feel I'm in a bit of a bizarre period, really. So lots happening with my children, to be honest. And so I've had to sort of realize that I need to prioritize them a bit. They're at that critical sort of teenage stage, late teens of just basically trying to get them on the right pathway. Business is booming. Every event has gone back to being live. And so I'm sort of almost fully booked flying all over mainly Europe, but uh, occasionally the States as well, doing a lot of public speaking and motivational speaking, which is fantastic. I love it because I also do safety events as well. So I do speak at a lot of sort of oil and gas, pharmaceutical, those sorts of events. So very different ones than just a traditional keynote of motivation. And yeah, I've got a second book in the pipeline that is just bubbling away that um, I have had publishers interested in. But I put that on the back burner at the moment just while I get over this busy spell. But one of the things I've loved doing is I'm on a board of trustees for a big military services club in London. I'm an aviation ambassador this year for the Department for Transport. So it's a national role, really looking at STEM, speaking to so many schools and basically just being a face of aviation in that ambassadorial role. And so it's been exciting. It's been a really developmental year for myself as well. Yeah, it sounds like you have your your hand in a lot of different buckets, and but they're all sort of going in a similar direction that seem really true to you. And I think what you're saying about being there for your kids, especially at that age, right? You're, you're supposed to be kind of around and helpful, but yet not because they're not. <laughs> it's a tightrope. It is a tightrope, yeah. My best quote was, I think I'd prefer to be shot at in Iraq than actually go through parenting teens again. Oh my gosh, that's sort of the homeschooling period that like the experiment that did not work. Yeah, exactly. I want to ask you one more question and then do a quick speed round before we round the corner here. So this is a podcast called When Women Fly, and we talk about the metaphor of flight and also really flying and how that transfers into other areas of life. So I love to ask the question, what does flying mean to you? It's about freedom. It's about being your authentic, true self. No one else is looking at you. No one's looking over your shoulder. It's about saying, I can behave. I can act in exactly the way that I want to do that. I think it's just about being true to yourself as well. And I love the confidence it gives you. And I love the fact that even from a very early stage of your flying career, it can give you when I say flying career, I'm talking commercial, civilian, it doesn't matter, general aviation. It's not about just military or civilian flying. It's about as a young person just getting in the air and suddenly people realizing they can do it and it gives them confidence for other areas of life. So that's what it's about for me. It is. And it's so transferable. And, and it is really, it's hard to put it into words, but I think that what you said and the energy that you say behind it and your whole story very much exemplifies that exactly what you said. Okay, ready for a quick speed round? I am. What have you done by 9 a.m. on a typical day? Oh, by, normally I've done an hour's walk. So I always go for a walk with my husband. And that is, if I'm not working, I then get that in before I go spinning at 9.30. So I've always had to get my walk in, quick breakfast, and then I go spinning for 9.30 to 10.50. I love it. Are you an introvert or an extrovert? I am as far on the E scale as you get. So yeah, <laughs> I am surprisingly extrovert as it comes. And so, so COVID must have tested that for you. Yeah, my husband loved it. He said it's the best two years of his life because he got me to himself the whole time. Well, and these teenagers, but basically all we could do was see each other. And yeah, he's, <laughs> he's quite an introvert, actually. So his natural 
to stay in, you know. And so he's like, this is brilliant. Not only have I got Mandy, but we're just staying in together and walking. So it's brilliant. I love it. What is something that people often get wrong about you? I think they often think I'm very, very thick skinned because I'm an extrovert. And actually I'm not. I do take things personally and I am quite emotional as well. So I'm the one that is always crying the first at any film. I was crying watching the Commonwealth Games the other day on the television. It was just a story about someone who'd done well and I burst into tears watching an athlete, you know, who's, who's, who's won. They think that you're very thick skinned, and but actually that's not quite me. Yeah, there's a soft side. What are you most proud of? I'm probably most proud. I know I'm meant to say my children, but I, I don't sometimes feel that at the moment. I think I'm, I'm most proud probably of achieving what I've achieved, but by staying myself. And that's tough at times. And I think one of my big achievements at the moment is being that role model. And having got the book out there, it's about the young people that are contacting me, constantly saying, thank you, because this has given me the confidence to do this. And so that's huge, actually. So that's probably one of the most things I'm most proud of. It does mean so much to you, doesn't it? Yeah. And what about book recommendations? What are you reading? Well, what have I, I've, just, I've just come back from holiday and actually I'm a real one for not reading self-help books when I'm away. I just read. I loved, oh, Where the Crawdors Sing. Absolutely loved that one. I've just read The Paper Palace as well, which was another fantastic book. Um, the books I've got on, uh, the, going, I've actually I've read the wonderful Shannon's Grit Factor, which I loved. And there's some fantastic books, Fearless Leadership as well, which I really enjoyed. There's a couple of good books that I could really recommend on the flying sort of side, which was one which was called Black Box Thinking by a gentleman called um, Matthew Saeed. And I love that because it's all about open and learning cultures, basically, and learning from failure. And to me, it's just, it hits the nail on the head. He uses aviation, he uses medicine. And that's a book that's almost become like a sort of a, a little Bible in the back of my mind as well. So yeah, there's lots of books there that I've, I absolutely love. Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners or any advice that you wish you were given along the way that you want to share? Yeah, I would just say believe in yourself. There's only one person that's, you know, and and basically there's plenty of other people that won't believe in you. So don't be one of those. Be the one that actually does believe in yourself, that backs yourself as well and put yourself forward for things. Be the one that says yes to stuff, not no. That's a great way to end it. And man, I'm so glad that you reached out to me, Mandy, and this has been so much fun. I'll have links in the episode webpage to mandyhickson.com and your book. And I'm excited about your second book and all the things that you have. You have a great impact on a lot of people. And I'm so glad you're here to share with us. Thank you so much, Sylvia. Honestly, it's been an absolute joy to chat to you. So thank you so much. The wider story of Mandy's journey to become one of UK's first female fast jet pilots is about overcoming obstacles, but it is also, and importantly, simply a story of a person who happens to be female going through the full process of setting a goal and meeting it. Whatever your idea of what you might become, there will be obstacles. And I hope you find as I did that from this conversation, that inspiration to move forward. And in full respect for anyone who chooses to protect democracy and serve, and untethered to any political opinion, I want to express my full respect for anyone who chooses to protect democracy and serve. 
so that we civilians can dream and live and raise our children in a democracy. As complicated as our politics are, let us just have gratitude. Let us be inspired by the resolve to serve as the underpinning of a life story. And let us commit to serving in whatever we do beyond our individual desires to be successful or iconic. Context matters and full respect is due. Furthermore, now you know more about what is involved. We have links to Mandy's socials and her website in our show notes, as well as her book, An Officer, Not a Gentleman. You've been listening to the When Women Fly podcast, an independent creative project founded by me, Sylvia Winter, to amplify stories and expand our vocabulary when it comes to ways in which we fly, how we do it, and why it is important. Thank you for showing up and listening again or for the first time. Your time is valuable. Okay, I want to note here something about the podcast and your involvement. We are rolling out a new way for you to get your voice on the pod. Periodically, I roll out a solo episode called Ask Me Anything. And until now, we have received all listener questions and feedback at the inbox of hello at whenwomenfly.com. And this will still be active for feedback and questions. But we have a voice message page now where you can submit your audio message. We will play some of them back in the Ask Me Anything episodes. Tell me what you want to hear more of. Ask a question, leave a thought, or tell me what you liked or you didn't like about an interview. Okay, if this episode or any episode resonates with you, share it, send it to a friend, and you will have amplified a story that just might spark a pivotal moment for someone. Also, I know you have heard this, but your five-star reviews make a huge difference. So thanks in advance. Have a great week. Thank you again for listening. I send you love and light and strength and flight, however that shows up for you today. The world needs women who fly. Let's keep learning together. Be bold, be brave, and fly. I'll see you next time.